Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you've uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we are in Acts chapter 19. We're almost out of the teens. We hit Acts 20. I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna try to get through Acts uh, this year. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're diving into Acts 19, as Pastor Matt already read in this morning, and it's in your bulletin. It's not going to be up on the screen. We're, we're talking about the problem with the, the Acts 19 disciples, uh, and, and we'll, we'll dive into the text in a moment. One of my, one of my absolute favorite passages of, of Scripture um, is, is John uh, chapter 3. And it actually, it perfectly sets up our passage in Acts 19 this morning. And so I keep your place in Acts 19, but I want to read to you John chapter 3. And it says this, after this, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, John the Baptist, was baptizing at Anon near Salim because Water was plentiful there, people, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. John 3.25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent, uh, but, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Church, John the Baptist could not, could not have said it any more clear, and yet more than, more than two decades later, here in Acts 19, we, we encounter some of John's loyalists who were still clinging to the message of John the Baptist, but somehow they, they had missed the Messiah. So Christian spiritual seeker, if you're here this morning, here, here's where I would ask you to dial in this morning. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he, he issues this, this sobering uh, warning and, and, and he, says, he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves or do you realize this about yourselves? that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. See, as Paul, as Paul rolls into Ephesus and he encounters, encounters a group of people that I, I believe, at least up into this encounter with Paul, I believe they had failed 
the test. And so the question this morning as we look into the mirror of God's word is this. Will we do the same? Will we will will their problem be our problem or listen, will we encounter the person of Jesus Christ? And so I want to look at three things this morning. Again, you can follow along on your on your bulletin. We're going to uh, we're going to look at three, uh, the three problems with these Acts 19 disciples. And, and the first thing that, it, that you see from the text in verses 1 and 2 uh, is that they had no power source. They had no power source. I want you to look at your neighbor and just say, no power source. Look at your other neighbor and tell him, no power source. Kent, Kent Hughes uh, he, he shares this story uh, of, uh, about these late 18th century colonists, and, and, he, and he, he shares this story, and, and, and uh, Dr. Hughes says this. He says that uh, they, they, they left Virginia, uh, again, late 1700s, 18th century. Uh, they, they left Virginia, and they started through the mountains to settle uh, the, to the, the valleys that lay further to the west. And so as they started on their journey, uh, they got held up. And he said it was you know, due to fear of Native Americans. Uh, there, there was the death of a horse. There was the breaking down of a wagon. It forced the, the, this group of, of, of settlers to stay in the mountains. And, and that's, where, that's where they stayed for over 20 years. For over 20 years, these, these people, they, they saw no other colonists, uh, no one at all, until a group of travelers, you said, uh, straggled into the neighborhood. So 20 years later, the, this, this group of colonists comes in, and, they, uh, and so much of their conversation was about the outside world. And the travelers asked the mountaineers what they thought about the new republic. Uh, they asked them what they thought about uh, the, the policies of the Continental Congress. And, and, and these, these, uh, these folks that have been in the mountains for 20 years, they said, uh, we have not so much heard uh, of a Continental Congress or of a republic. They, they still thought of themselves as loyal subjects to the British king. They, uh, they had not even heard of George Washington uh, or the Revolutionary War. Uh, church family, as was the case with Apollos in Acts 18, there is much debate over the spiritual condition of these disciples in Acts chapter 19. Though some see these disciples, these in the Greek, mathetes is the word, as they see these disciples as disciples of Jesus, I, I think that the context makes it pretty clear that they were, in fact, students and followers of John the Baptist. We'll dig into that more in verses three through five, but what they had come to believe was the preparatory message of Jesus' cousin, John. And now, check this out, 20 years, 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, these guys were like the American settlers of the 1700s. Those American settlers, they were oblivious of the new revelation that was now common knowledge. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Just oblivious of this revelation. And so perhaps... Paul, Paul assumed that they were Christ followers at first, but then he began to discern that, was some, that something was off. And you see that in his question in verse two. Look at your text. 
Acts 19.2, Paul asks, did you receive, that, that, that Greek word for receive is lambano, it means to come in possession of, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And D.L. Moody, he, he tells us this. He says, the manner in which Paul phrased his question implies that he understood, he understood that the Spirit is normally given at the time of faith in Jesus and not subsequent to it. The men had apparently responded to John's call, Moody says, for repentance and baptism to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, but they were unaware that the gift of the Spirit had, had been given, that the Holy Spirit had come. And so remember, church family, John the Baptist, his ministry was one of preparation. His ministry was one of preparation. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets who really their role, their role was to point to the coming Messiah. John was the forerunner to Jesus. But what's interesting, what's interesting is that John, he did talk about the Holy Spirit. John did talk about the Holy Spirit. It was John, it was John who told his followers in Luke 6, 3, 16, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those were John the Baptist's words. And, and later, Jesus, Jesus validated that prophecy pointing to its imminent fulfillment in Acts 1, all the way back at the beginning of Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. Jesus has said, uh, it says this, while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you say, what, what gives? Why, why would these disciples of John, why would they say, hey, we, like, we, haven't even, wait, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit? And, and though I, I do think that the text at first can be confusing, I, 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 agree, I agree with Daryl Bach who says this about verse 2. Daryl Bach says this, this probably does not mean that the disciples of John do not know that the Spirit exists. Because that was, a, that was a common Jewish concept. And John the Baptist, we'd already seen, had discussed it with his followers. He had discussed the coming of the Spirit. But he said, rather, it means that they had not heard that the Spirit of God has come. They didn't know that the Spirit of God has come. Uh, Alistair Begg referred to these, these cats as he, he called them the, the, the 12 almost Christians, right? <laughs> he, he said they're, they're the 12 almost Christians, they were still, church, they were still looking ahead to the promise, but somehow they had missed the person of Christ. They, they had somehow missed the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in church, at the end of the day, without the Spirit of God, these men were lacking the power source uh, to live in victory over sin. They were, they were lacking the power source to, 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 to be transformed. And, and you say, well, what's the application? What is this? What does this mean for us? Listen, the Bible tells us, uh, if you want to jot these down, there's plenty of other passages that talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But in Romans 8, verse 9 and Romans 8, uh, verses 14 through 16, it tells us the, the Bible tells us that the, the spirit of God indwells every single Christian. Amen. 
The spirit of the living God indwells all believers. And and John Stott says this in a word. He said these men, they were still living in the Old Testament, right? Just like those those settlers, they're still living in the past. They're living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They, They understood neither that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor nor did they understand that those who believe in him and are baptized into him receive the distinctive blessings of the new age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so church, these, these guys basically were living like Pentecost and Acts 2 had not happened. They were living like Pentecost hadn't happened. Now, in their case, it was because of true ignorance. But church, we, we, don't, we don't get to plead ignorance. Amen? We, we don't get to plead ignorance so often. And here's the application. We, we still live like we're under the law. We still live like we're under the curse of the law and sin. And so let, let me ask you this, Christian, do you still have a, a performance mindset before God? In your relationship with God, do you still have this performance mindset? And, and then are, are you, let me ask you this, are you overconfident when you're having like a good Christian day, right? Are you overconfident uh, when, when your Christian performance is like peaked out, right? But then are you underconfident when you're struggling? Are you, are you, uh, does that, and then when you're overconfident, does that lead to you being puffed up with pride and self-righteousness? And when you're underconfident, is, does that lead to self, self-loathing and defeat? And see, these are, these, are the, these are sure signs that A, you're not focused on the gospel. You're not focused on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And B, you're not relying on the power source of the Holy Spirit within you. And we talked about this last week, but, but have you moved from, from, from the very necessary place of repentance to, to victory and the new life that you have in Christ? See, that only comes from being completely surrendered to the Spirit of God in you. So Christian, listen, you've got to quit seeing grace as only freedom to sin more. Right. You got to quit seeing grace as only freedom to sin more. And you've got to see start seeing God's grace as the freedom to be set apart more for God. God's mission and his calling on your life and the works to which he's called you to. Before we go on to the second thing, a, a, a side note, church family, uh, uh, many will point to this passage is, is evidence of a, a second work or a second blessing of the Holy Spirit post-salvation. But, but here, here's the thing. I, I think the context and the transitional nature of Acts demands a different perspective. Derek Thomas says this, the mark, listen, the mark of genuine discipleship is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the professing believer. Okay, it's absence, Thomas says, implied for Paul that these men only seemed to be disciples. In fact, they were not. Thomas goes on, he says this, far from proving a two stage experience of the spirit, these men had not experienced stage one. These men had not experienced stage one. They had no power source. Second thing this morning is this, as we look at verses three through five, verse three and four, it, it, it takes us. It takes us back 
takes us back to the encounter of, of, of Apollos, and, and, and we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. But the second point I want to make is this. Uh, the, the, the second problem with these disciples of John the Baptist is they had no personal savior. They had no personal savior. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell them, no personal savior. Okay, that, that sounded kind of mopey and depressing. Look at your, look at your, other, uh, look at your other neighbor and tell them, no personal savior. <laughs> so, so church, remember, John's baptism, we talked about this. It emphasized the need for the cleansing of sin. It was a, it was a baptism of repentance, but it was a, it was a preparatory baptism. R.C. Sproul tells us this, John, John had disciples who went about baptizing their message, and their message was one of repentance because of the historical crisis at hand, what was going on at the time uh, with Rome. And so John's message was this, the Messiah is coming, your Savior is at the door, and you are not ready. You are not ready. You are still unclean, so you need to undergo a rite of cleansing to prepare yourself for the coming king. And so no doubt, verses three through five are a snapshot of the conversation. This is, this is not the full conversation. I, I, I believe that Paul unpacked for these guys the entirety of the gospel, because that's, that's how Paul rolled, right? Paul shared Jesus. I believe that he unpacked the entirety of the gospel, that Jesus as God in human flesh, the, the perfect righteous life of Jesus, his sacrificial death as a substitute for their sin. I believe that he unpacked the glorious resurrection of Jesus and, and how Christ had conquered sin and death for them. And I believe that he also talked about the fulfillment of that promise of the Holy Spirit. See, many see no difference. They see no difference. If you were here last Sunday between the spiritual condition of Apollos in Acts 18 and, and these followers of John the Baptist. And I, I would respectfully disagree. What is evident is that these men, unlike Apollos, they did not know Jesus. See, while Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, Acts 18, 25, this group of, of men, they, they hadn't even gotten to Christ. For them, it wasn't an incomplete gospel. They hadn't heard the gospel yet. So here's the bottom line, church family, that these people, they, they, they were still under the law. They're still under the law. They, they, they knew that they needed cleansing from sin. Uh, they, they had conviction of sin. But, but as we've already discussed, there was no, there was no mechanism for victory over sin. Their, their, their highest power source it was their own human effort, right? It, it, was, it was their own willpower. And, and Tony Morita says this, these disciples of John at first had some form of, of religion, some external form of religion, but until Paul told them about the gospel, they had not been changed truly and internally. If you study history, it's, it, it's interesting, uh, the, the conversion to Christianity of, of John Wesley, famous preacher and revivalist, it, it parallels to some degree the, the, the story of these men, to some degree. Wesley, Wesley grew up in a household with a, with a father who was a pastor and with a godly mother. 
and he, he attended Oxford, and he uh, mastered uh, biblical Greek. He served in the church. He was ordained in the church. And even while he was at Oxford, he started the Oxford uh, Holy Club, right? <laughs> Can you imagine starting that at like A&M or Blinn, right? <laughs> um, just, you know, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm headed to my, my Holy Club, right? <laughs> Why, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just, just going to hang with some friends and watch the game. Okay, sinner. (laughs) Started the holy club. But it wasn't until he went to to Georgia, he went went to America, went to Georgia, to the Native Americans, that God opened up his eyes to the gospel. his, His missional efforts were an abysmal failure. In fact, there's a quote after returning back to England, he was quoted. John Wesley said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who shall convert me? But by God's grace, John Wesley, when he was in America, he he ran into a group called the Moravians. And the Moravians uh, were a group that emphasized these essentials of just opening up the Bible. Crazy, crazy thought. (laughs) They just, they emphasized Bible study. They emphasized prayer. They emphasized worship. And it was May 24th, 1738 that John Wesley wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Said I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Amen. And he said, an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and he'd saved me from the law of sin and death. See, church, John Wesley had all the trappings of religion, right? He had all the trappings of religion. He he had the theological knowledge, but what he didn't have was a personal relationship with the Savior. He had not connected the dots on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. It's all, it's God. It's, his, it's God's steadfast love that, that pursues us. It's, it's his amazing grace that's revealed in the person of Jesus. You say, well, what's the application? What do we, what do, we do with this? Hear me. I, I don't know where you are. Maybe, maybe you feel bad about your sin, right? Because these guys, they knew that their sin was a problem, right? Remember, the, the message of John the Baptist was repent of your sin. You need to get it washed away. So maybe you, you feel bad about your sin. Maybe, maybe you know that your sin is a problem. And maybe, maybe you can speak some of the religious lingo. And you even attend some religious events and gatherings. But can you articulate the truth of the gospel, And have you placed all of your faith and your trust and your hope, not not in the idea of a savior, not in the theological proposition of a savior, but in the historical flesh and blood, God, man, Jesus, who died on a Roman cross for your sin. And if you have no sign, if you have no sign of the new life and the transformation that only the gospel can, the gospel can bring. I'm just asking you, you have to at least pause. You have to at least pause and ask, 
Am I in a similar spot as these disciples of John in Acts 19? Am I missing the Savior? Am I missing the Savior? The the good news is that that day, these men were baptized into the name of Jesus. Amen? Now, we don't have the baptistry tub filled today. I mean, we, we can do it if we need to. We do have baptism next Sunday. But they understood, listen, it wasn't just, wasn't just about turning from sin. It, it was about total victory of sin through Jesus. And the good news is that that same offer is on the table today for anyone, anyone who will call on the name of Jesus. Amen? Third thing this morning is this, as we look at verses 6 through, through 10, and I, I'll unpack this, but... Uh, the, the, the third problem with these disciples is there was, there's no persuasive speech. There's no power source. There's no personal savior. There, there's no, there was no persuasive speech. I want you to look at your neighbor and tell him no persuasive speech. Look at your other neighbor, tell him no persuasive speech. <laughs> you, ever, you ever talk to that like really convincing uh, door-to-door salesman, right? I, I don't know. I, I have, it's because I sold books door-to-door that like I'm like, I'm like instantly grading and judging every door-to-door salesman, you know? Um, when I sold books door-to-door in, in North Carolina, my, my friend Marcel absolutely shattered the standard for a stellar door-to-door salesman, right? This dude, at 20 years old, right? I, I think uh, he, man, what did, he, he got a check for like $30,000 at the end of the summer uh, for selling books as a 20-year-old, right? We just finished our sophomore year at AM. And, and, and this dude was so convincing selling educational books. He, uh, he could sell a Spanish like uh, tutorial book to a dude from El Salvador, having convinced him that he needed to sharpen up on his Espanol. Okay. Like he could sell, I mean, he sell like math books to like algebra teachers, right? Uh, he, Marcel's message was convincing. It was convincing. I, Years later, I remember when Steph and I, when we lived in our, our townhome in H-Town, uh, a guy came by selling magazine subscriptions to raise money for his high school organization, right? Uh, but there's only one problem. He's like showing us his samples and his magazines are all tattered and torn. And, and, th- and, and like the dude's looking super rough. And he's like 29 years old trying to tell us that he like passes a high school kid. And I'm like, Dude, we're the same age, okay? Like, I'm pretty sure, like, get out of here. Stop. Church, I, I, I won't belabor this point, but, but I want to make an observation that, that, that is implied, but, 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 I, but maybe not obvious from the text as we talk about this, this idea of no persuasive speech. Do you, do you know who was already set up shop in Ephesus before Paul arrived? It was these disciples of John. It was these disciples of John. But do you know know who turned Ephesus upside down with his ministry and message? It was Paul. And it's because the gospel message is persuasive. Amen? It's because the message of the gospel, it's accompanied with power. And the gospel alone has the power to transform hearts and lives. Amen? And in verse 6, we see the power of the gospel, though this is, this is the final reference to speaking in tongues and acts. In my opinion, it's, it's obvious what's happening in the context. 
I believe with David Peterson that these were more than likely, these were Jewish disciples. And the reason that we see a little, a little Pentecost remix is for the same reason we saw it in Acts 2. The, the, the blueprint had been set in Acts 1.8. The gospel needed to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But in order to be equipped for mission, for the mission, an almost entirely Jewish church would need to be able to supernaturally communicate the gospel to the rest of the world. And so thus, the, the gift of tongues. Now, church, the Holy Spirit is still alive and well today. Amen? Can we just say amen? And he can still operate in whatever manner he chooses. Amen. And so but let's be clear, at least in Acts, at least in Acts, the gift of tongues was utilized to share the gospel in fulfillment of Acts 1.8. That God was raising up witnesses, Acts 1-8, empowered by the Holy Spirit to get the good news to the ends of the earth. And by laying his hands on these brothers, the authority of Paul was uh, affirmed and it was authenticated and his ministry and his message was, was tied to the same ministry and message as the apostles John and Peter who had had a similar experience in Acts 8-17 in Samaria. See, so much, so much of what the church is pointing to right now and what, what we're saying is so, is so unattractive and it's so unpersuasive to a lost world. Why? Because we're spotlighting personalities. And we're spotlighting ideologies and we're spotlighting opinions and programs and stuff. And we've got to get back to a single-minded devotion to the person and work of Jesus. Amen? Christ alone. The message of, of Christ is persuasive. The message of, of Christ is compelling. And yes, it, you, you read Paul encounters more opposition in verses 9 and 10, but he perseveres, the text tells us, for two more years in Ephesus. And verse 10 reveals that, if you look at verse 10, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And see, because they were missing, they were missing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples, these disciples of John the Baptist, they didn't have a very persuasive message. But Paul did. Because Paul called people to victory and power. Paul, Paul called people to the solution for their sin problem. Paul called people to Jesus. I'll close with this this morning. We're, we're done. The, the problem, y'all, the problem with the American church is that we've forgotten that Jesus must increase and we must decrease. Let me ask you this, Christian. Did, did Jesus save you for you or did Jesus save you for himself? Did Jesus save you for you or did Jesus save you for himself? See, the problem with the American church is that we're, we're not passing the test of 2 Corinthians 13.5. It's not about all this peripheral stuff. It's about Christ in you. 
And the problem with the American church is that though we act spiritual, we don't live like the Savior. We wax eloquent with all our doctrine, but do we walk with the Savior? And I've said it before, one of my favorite parts of our membership follow-up processes is hearing people's stories, getting to sit down in people's living rooms and hear their testimonies and stories of coming to faith in Christ. And I love seeing how God saves people, how Jesus saves people in so many different circumstances and in context, but, but a recurring theme that I often hear, uh, especially uh, among our college students, is, that, is this same story, similar story of, man, I, I came up in the church, right? I went to all the things. I, I went to all the programs and the activities and events, and I, and I heard it, but, but somehow I missed Jesus. I miss the gospel. I miss the, this call into a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And listen, I, I, I don't know where you are this morning. I just don't want you to miss Jesus. I just don't want you to miss Christ. That the God of the universe has revealed himself in a person. And that Jesus, listen, Jesus loves you. He, he died as the perfect sacrifice for your sin. He rose and he defeated sin, death, and an enemy that you could not defeat. The question is, will you believe and receive what he has done for you? Don't settle for the low-hanging fruit of, of religious talk or, or, or practices. Believe the gospel. Believe that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Y'all pray with me this morning.